First Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 10 is where we're going to be at this evening. We're continuing in our, in our series. If you remember, we're going through the book of First Peter, and we're looking at, and the series is entitled Exiles. We're looking at how can we live as exiles in this world, right? This world is not our home. Our future kingdom awaits us when Jesus returns, but yet we still live here. And we'll live here until we pass on or Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. And so how are we to live? How are we to live? Where is our hope, especially as we face persecution in this world? That's what we're looking at through the book of 1 Peter and what we'll be looking at tonight as well. I've entitled this message, Who Are We? And how does that help us think rightly about persecution? Who are we? How does that help us think rightly about persecution? I'm going to read the text. We'll pray and then we'll dive in. Verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Bow with me in prayer. God, we thank you for this evening and this opportunity to open your word once again today to, to learn from it, to be encouraged from it. And as we walk through this text tonight, I pray that, that we might learn who we are and how that helps us when we face persecution. God, we live in a country that is quickly becoming a post-Christian nation. It's quickly persecuting believers in Jesus. God, we need hope. God, give that to us tonight. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who am I? You know, that's the question that many people are asking these days. Who am I? And that is an appropriate question because, I mean, we are in the midst of the biggest identity crisis in, in maybe the history of the world. I don't know if it's too strong to say that or not, but maybe in the history of the world, we are in the biggest identity crisis. No one knows who they are, and so they, they run from identity to identity. You know, they, they're seeking, they're searching to figure out who they are, who they can become. Maybe you have an identity crisis tonight. You're wondering, who am I? You want to know who you are. You come here tonight seeking and, and, and searching for that. Well, tonight we're going to find out who we are and why that is important. You see, as Christians, we can know who we are. We have a sure identity, one that is given us by God. And so, and so who are we? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to look at the cornerstone 
on which we are built. And, and if you know anything about building, cornerstones are, are very important. They, they're what the entire structure leans on. You see, if, you're, if your cornerstone is faulty, if your cornerstone is not set right, if the, if the soil underneath your cornerstone begins to erode away, then the whole structure is going to give way. It's not going to be right. It's going to be ruined. And so we, we have to make sure that our cornerstone is solid, that it is set in the right place. And as Christians, we have a cornerstone. And so who is our cornerstone? Well, look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And then when you look down in, in verse 6, we learn that this living stone that Peter is talking about is the cornerstone who is also chosen and precious. You see, Peter begins by reminding us that that is Jesus who we come to. He says, as you come to him, it's Jesus that we come to. Jesus is the one who provides us with salvation. Jesus is the way. There is no other way for us to be saved but by Jesus. We can, we can search and we can seek and we can look for other ways to experience salvation, but the only way that we are going to be able to come to God is through Jesus. And what's remarkable about Jesus is that Jesus is not a dead Messiah. If you notice here, he says that, that he is a living stone. Though Jesus was crucified on our behalf, though Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, Jesus resurrected from the grave. Jesus is a, a living stone. You see, the, the foundation, the cornerstone of our faith it does not reside in a, in a dead Messiah. It resides in a living Messiah. And no other world religion can say that, right? All of their Messiahs, all of those who came to lead them are dead and they are in the grave. But Jesus resurrected from the grave. Because Jesus resurrected, we will resurrect one day. You see, we do not follow a dead Messiah. We follow a living stone. And that's what makes Christianity different. That's what gives us hope. Though Jesus died, he now lives. He rose from the dead. And, and that is not true of others, but that is true of Jesus. He resurrected from the grave. And Jesus' resurrection proves that he is the Messiah. Jesus' resurrection is the Father's stamp of approval on, on Jesus' life. And there's a father's stamp of approval in Jesus' cross work. You see, if Jesus didn't live a perfect life, if Jesus' work on the cross did not pay the penalty for our sins, he would be in the grave. But Jesus was the perfect, spotless lamb. And the father resurrects him from the grave as a stamp of approval in his life. And Jesus is the living stone, but Jesus is, is not only the living stone, Jesus is also the chosen stone. God did not choose Jesus because he was popular. I mean, you notice here, it says that, that he's a living stone that is rejected by men. God did not choose him because he was popular. He didn't hold a vote or, or send out a survey, and he didn't, he didn't set up a PR team to really pump up Jesus' numbers. And when those numbers reached you know, a certain threshold, he said, Jesus is my guy. And Jesus is, look at all the people. They, they like Jesus. All the people have voted for Jesus. No, none of that took place and said, God the Father and Jesus the Son has a plan that extended back before the foundations of this world ever even began. And that plan centers on a suffering Messiah. 
A plan that was developed before the foundation of the world. A plan that, is, that has been worked out from the very beginning. Adam and Eve, they're placed in this, this perfect garden, the Garden of Eden. And God says, listen, I want you guys to work it and to keep it. I, I want you to, to take this world and I want you to make something beautiful out of it. I've, I've given you a good and perfect world. I want you to have fellowship with me. I want you to walk with me in the cool of the day. I will visit you each and every single day. We will have a relationship, but there's one thing. Just don't eat from this one tree. You can have everything else. Don't eat from this one tree. What happens when we tell our kids that or our grandkids that? You can have everything here, just not this one toy. They run to it, and so did they. They were deceived by the serpent, and they ate But God gives a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there is one who is going to come who will crush the head of the serpent. But as he crushes the head of the serpent, he will also receive a mortal blow on his heel. And Jesus is the one. He is the one who has come. God kept his promise. And throughout biblical history, we see God promising over and over again to send a Messiah. And Jesus comes. See, our God is a a promise-keeping God. And Jesus came. The living stone that is chosen and precious in His sight is the one who gives us hope. And as we come to the living stone, we become a part of God's people. You see, those who come to Christ become living stones with which the temple is built. So look at verse 4 and 5 again. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious... You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ as we come to Him, he says. And the idea is that that as we come to Him in salvation first and then as we come to Jesus each and every single day, we are built up into this spiritual house. You see, when we we become Christians, we can't just... Walk an aisle one day or get dunked in the baptistry or say a prayer and say, we're good. As we come to him each and every single day, we are being built up. We are being changed. We are being built into the temple of God. And this is, this is, this is important. The spiritual house that he's talking about is the temple. You think about it in the Old Testament times, the temple is, is the place where the priest worked. It's the place where sacrifices took place. It is the place where God's spirit dwelt and he's saying look you when you come to Jesus you become the temple you become the place where God's spirit dwells you become that and Peter says that the temple has changed the temple is no longer a physical structure the temple is now the people of God think about that I know that it's popular, I grew up saying it myself, that we refer to this physical structure that we're standing in right now as the house of God. But as Peter says here, the the physical structure that we call East Ridge Baptist Church that sits here on Ovilla Road is not the house of God. We are the house of God. Let that sink in for a moment. We are the house of God, not this place. This place is a tool for us to do ministry in this community. We are the house of God. 
The Holy Spirit literally dwells in us. We are the ones who are built up to be a temple. That is significant. It means that, that, that God's presence goes with us everywhere we go. It means that we don't need this church building in order to have church. When we gather together with one another, whether it be here in this physical building, whether it be at the coffee shop, whether it be at Cancun's for the men's breakfast, you know, whether it be in someone's living room, we gather together as the church and we can have church. We don't need a building, we don't need a sanctuary, but we need one another. And we need one another. We really need one another. You see, Jen's grandpa, he was a bricklayer. He owned a bricklaying company. And when he bricked a home, I mean, do you, do you think that he just took, took one massive brick and, and brought in a big, huge crane or, or maybe a helicopter of some sort and just like laid that one thing over the house? Uh, that's not how you brick a house, right? What do you do? You order hundreds and hundreds of bricks. You have them delivered to the job site. You get you and, and some men out there with you that, that, that work for you. And you begin putting those bricks on the house one by one by one until eventually the entire structure is bricked. And if half the structure gets bricked, you wouldn't say that that's a brick home, right? If somebody came to your house and they, they only did half the job or they, they left some bricks out here and there where there was all these holes and pockets all throughout your house, you would say they didn't, they didn't finish the job. They didn't, they didn't brick your house. You probably wouldn't pay them. You would, you know, want them to come back. And, and if they didn't, then you'd have to find someone else to, to finish, over, finish out. You see, all of the bricks must be used in order for the house to be a house that you would consider a brick house. Or think about what about, what about those bricks that, that are then carried off, the, the scraps that are, that are left over? Because inevitably there are some. Some get broken, some get ruined, some just, you know, maybe order a little bit more. What about those? Well, would you say that those belong to that house? No, you certainly wouldn't say that they belong to that house. And I, think, I think the same applies to us. Look at verse 5 again. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. And the idea is that, that we all individually and corporately are being built up into the temple of God. We are becoming the people of God together. Yes, we are all individually indwelt by the Spirit of God, but God takes all of us and He makes all of us into the temple of God. He builds us up individually and then He builds us up corporately to form His temple, to form His people. And so that means that, that we must not neglect to meet together with one another. If we are a part of the church, we must gather together with the church. We must be the church. We don't have to gather here, but we must gather. We must be the church every day, everywhere. And we can do that. We must gather together with one another. We must gather together with one another. We are the temple of God. And not only are we the temple of God, but, but we also learn here that, that those who come to Christ represent the holy priesthood. So look at, look at verse 5 again. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We 
are those whom God has set aside and is consecrated for his work. We are the temple and we are the priests who work in the temple. We pull double duty. And what are we to do? What are we to do as the priests? Well, we're to do what the priests of old did. We're to offer sacrifices. Now, that doesn't mean that you go and you get some bulls and some goats and stuff like that and and set up an altar outside of this church or set up an altar in your front yard and and call your your church members over and say, hey, we're the church. We need to to offer some sacrifices. Let's let's pull out these bulls and let's pull out these goats and, and begin to do that. That's not what we do. So how do we do that? How do we offer these, these spiritual sacrifices? What are these spiritual sacrifices that we offer to God? Well, in Hebrews 13, 15 through 16, we read this. Through him, and he's talking about through Jesus. Then let us continually offer up our sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So we praise God. And when we praise God, we are offering a spiritual sacrifice to him. Not too long ago, I came across some interview questions that that a lead pastor uh, at a church here in Texas, this is a large church, but uh, some interview questions that he asks people who come in. And when he has his staff maybe interview some of these guys and and he gets his turn with them and and he says there's one major question that he comes in and he asks them. He says, When's the last time that the gospel has made you cry? When is the last time that reflecting on the gospel has made you cry? I mean, think about that. When is the last time that you have cried over the gospel? When's the last time that that the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is your Savior, that he is your Lord, has impacted you in that way? Now, I'm not an emotional person. You can ask Jen. In 10 years of marriage, I've probably cried five times. And she would certainly affirm that. Many of you are probably not emotional either. But, but when is the last time that the gospel has had an emotional impact on you? Maybe, maybe you didn't shed a tear. But when is the last time that you have been absolutely floored by the fact that God would save you? That God would would choose you. That God would send his only son to die for you. When is the last time that that fact has absolutely floored you? You're like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that God would do that for me. Has that ever happened? Or do you think, well, I mean, why why wouldn't God save me? I'm pretty awesome. Uh, I've got a lot of skills. Like, I can certainly do a lot of things for his church. Like, why wouldn't God save me? As believers, we, we offer spiritual sacrifices to God when we are drawn by the gospel to praise God, to, to sing praises to him, to praise his name for what he has done for us. And in order for us to do that, we have got to be absolutely captivated by Jesus. We've got to be absolutely floored by the gospel. You see, we come and we sing songs and we sing songs that magnify Jesus and we sing songs about the gospel of what Jesus has done for us. And we don't just sing those songs just to sing those songs to say that we come to church. We sing those songs and as we sing those songs, 
Man, an emotional response should happen in us. We should sing louder. We should sing more. We should, we should be absolutely floored by what Jesus has done for us. And that should cause us to praise Him, to worship Him. And when we do that, when we praise God for the gospel, and we offer a sweet-smelling aroma to Him, we offer spiritual sacrifices and praising God is one way that we can offer spiritual sacrifice. Caring for one another is, is another way that we offer spiritual sacrifices. Continuing in Hebrews 13, verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. When we live self-sacrificial lives that are devoted to other people, when we share with other people, when we give of our resources to other people, we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. And we won't read these, but, but in Romans 12 and Ephesians 5 and Philippians 4, we also learn that we offer spiritual sacrifices when we use our gifts, the gifts that God has given us, for, and we give our goods to others to care for them, to love them. That is what we are to do as the temple, as the holy priesthood. We are to give of ourselves to others. We are to praise God for what he has done for us in the gospel. That is what God is literally building us up to do as we come to him each and every single day. God is building us up into the temple of God. God is building us up into the royal priesthood who would offer sacrifices to him, spiritual sac sacrifices to him. But when we do these things, sometimes the world doesn't understand. Sometimes the world comes against us. Sometimes the world begins to, to persecute us because we're worshiping God, because we're calling other people to worship God. And we're saying that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the only way, that what you're doing, how you're working, what you're believing is not gonna get you to heaven. And we praise God for Jesus for his sacrifice in the world doesn't like that when the world might come against us they might persecute us but this is who we are we can't change that we can't change who we are we cannot change who God is literally building us up to be and so how does who we are Help us to think rightly regarding the persecution that we might face for who we are. How does who we are help us to think rightly regarding the persecution that we might face for who we are? How does who we are help us deal with persecution? Well, the church to whom Peter wrote was certainly being persecuted. They were a persecuted church. They were being driven to the margins of society, to the fringes of society, because they were becoming more like Jesus each and every single day. So he's writing to them and he's saying, how can I give these people hope? How can I help these people continue to press on? How can I help them to continue to believe, to continue to worship and to praise God? How am I gonna do that? I don't want them to think that they have made a mistake. I don't want them to think that, that, that God is being mean to us by causing us to be built up into something that is causing our persecution. God is not being passive either, right? As if, as if he can't do anything about the persecution that we are experiencing. And so let's look and see what, what Peter does. Let's look and see how, the, how he provides us with hope. In verse six, for it stands in scripture, and here's his evidence that he is giving. He's looking back to the Old Testament, 
And he says, For it stands in Scripture, quoting from Isaiah, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now Zion is the place where the temple was built. It's Jerusalem. It's the place where the temple was being built. It's the place where the temple was laid. And we are told that that Jesus is going to take the place of that temple. It It is the cornerstone. He becomes the cornerstone. And Jesus himself affirms this. And in John 2, 19, Jesus answered them to his critics and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he's not talking about the physical temple as you go on in the narrative there. You find that Jesus is talking about himself and he says, look, I am the temple. All of worship, all of everything is being centered on me. And whoever believes in me won't be put to shame. In verse 7 so the honor is, is for you who believe. Though we face persecution, we learn here that we will not be put to shame. We will be vindicated for our beliefs. But what about those who don't believe? What is Peter's word about them? What is God's word about them? Remember, this is the inspired word of God. Believe, but, excuse me, but for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, literally the one that they have thrown away. The one that they have rejected, the one that they said is not good for building. This one has become the cornerstone, the one upon which everything is built, the one that holds it all together. And then he goes on and he says, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. And so he says, those who do not believe, those who do not believe, they they stumble, they fall. And we notice here that this doesn't happen by accident. We are told that they are are destined to do that. And of course, that that is a mystery in how all of this works together. I I don't, can't solve that mystery tonight. All right. God in his providence and his sovereignty has destined these people to disobey, has destined them to stumble, has destined them to fall. Unless you think that the Lord is not capable of managing this world, unless you think that the rejection of Jesus by others is the result, that results in your persecution is outside of God's control, lest you think that, that these people are not stumbling apart from God, they are. They are stumbling because they are destined to do that. Because they have rejected Jesus. They are disobeying God's word because they have been destined to do that. Disobedience. Persecution of believers. It's not a mystery to God. It's not out of his control. God is fully in control. And Peter is writing this, not to spark a theological argument. Peter is writing this to give a persecuted people hope. That's what Peter wants you to see too. That's what God wants you. This is why this has been preserved in his word. So that you might have hope. So that you might recognize that God is fully in control. And so we shouldn't allow persecution. We shouldn't allow the world and, and, and it coming against us and the evils to draw us away from, from Jesus. Instead, we must continue to believe. We must continue to hope in Jesus. 
and who we are, who God is making us into, even though it might result in persecution, it should drive that hope in us. So Peter comes back to that again in verse 9. But you, look what he says about you. You are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, you are God's chosen race. Out of all the people in this, on this earth, God chose you to be his royal priesthood. God chose you to be part of his holy nation. God chose you, specifically you, to be his own possession. God chose you to have an intimate relationship with him. He literally called you out of darkness. And the idea is that that there was this total darkness, there was this spiritual cloud that is around you. Imagine being in a cave where you, you cannot see and you cannot get out because it was absolutely, completely dark. You have no way to know the way out. And you're bumping into the wall as you're trying to search for different things left and right. And you could stay there forever doing that. But then God comes and he shines his light on you. And he says, I want you. I want you to be a part of my nation. I want you to be the temple. I want you to be the priesthood. I want you to work for me. I want you to be my possession, to be a part of my future kingdom. And he shows you the light. And draws you out of that darkness so that you would follow him. You see, there's this notion that that we come to Jesus on our own, that just just one day we just decide on our own that that we want to follow Jesus, that that we have been following our own path, that we've been doing our own thing forever, that 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 we see Jesus as our enemy and we are persecuting his people. And just all of a sudden we just say, well, somebody talk me into it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe in Jesus. That's not how it works. That's not, what, that's not what God is communicating here. God is saying, I reached down into your life, I changed your heart, and I specifically called you to be mine. And you came to me. You turned to me. You confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord because I drew you to myself. I chose you. See, us choosing Jesus does not give us hope. What gives us hope is God choosing us. What causes us to carry on, what causes us to keep marching forward despite the first persecution is the fact that God has chosen us to be his people, to be his building, to be his temple, and to do all of that for his purposes the cosmic king of this world, the one who has dealt a death blow to Satan, the one who will finish him off when he returns, called you to be his chosen people, his temple where his spirit dwells, his royal priesthood who works for him. And that should give us hope. That should give us hope when the world comes against us, when the world begins to persecute us, when the world calls us names, when the world takes us to court, when the world kills us. We continue to hope in Jesus because God is building us up, because God has called us to himself. And we see that we are a part of his nation 
because of what He has done for us. And so we should not give up hope. We should not believe that that God is a mean God because He is building us up into the spiritual house that will ultimately result in our persecution. We are God's people and that is by design and we will be vindicated for our beliefs. When times get tough, when the world comes against you, remember who you are. Remember how you have become who you are. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. Remember who you are and proclaim him. Proclaim his grace, proclaim his mercy, proclaim his love to the world. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are the instruments that he uses to reach the world. That is who you are. That is your identity. And that's how you can face persecution with hope and with joy. Your chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.